Okay, good morning. Another Saturday morning. Uh, beautiful weather out, and hopefully the background traffic won't be too bad. Um, so where we left off last, we talked a little bit about your mom's side of the family. We talked about you and the forbidden book that your dad ended up tearing up and throwing in, <laughs> in the oven, which I guess for the podcast, uh, you now have a copy of that book now. You yeah, can, you can yeah. only read, uh, what, six years later? <laughs> uh, eight, no, 70 years, 70 years later. later. Yeah. So that's kind of that. What I wanted to kind of do is just a little bit, we, we've heard a little bit about your mom's side of the family and this, just tell us what you can remember. Uh, is there much on your dad's side of the family, like your grandparents outside? Well, uh, on my dad's side of the family, my, uh, my dad's, father was a tailor mm. and uh, I could tell by the way my dad went dressed all the time uh, and he had and I, I still have the picture of their house mm -hmm. I stand there because my brother took that once I wanted to have that house on paper so I could look at it once in a while but they also had what they call a cafe where you could go and you could have a beer, you could have something to 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 eat mm. with uh, with a drink where you could sit there with a bunch of guys and uh, chew the fat or whatever. Uh, because tailoring didn't bring enough, and uh, what at one time I think was the barn of a uh, a house that was part of a farm. Uh, it was. Uh, he turned it into a cafe and people stopped in. It was an ideal location where several roads came together. Mm. And, well, it, it, no matter which way you come, you got to come by that place. So, anyway, uh, my brother came over one time and he had uh, the guy with him whose brother made the dope in that I have here in the kitchen. I inherited that dope in. Full of memories, that thing. Anyhow, uh, uh, he said that 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 guy that my brother came with. He said that the chairs in my dad's cafe, my my grandfather's cafe, mm -hmm. was uh, they were made by Michael Tolan. And he was the inventor of the bending of uh, walnut, hmm. no doubt, because you the steam bending, and they they had these, and they were actually all the branches. They they were not laced or anything. They they were just a branch skinned, and they they heat them up, and bend them, and I remember we had one chair that. Dad brought from his the house where he was born, yeah. and it was sitting in my parents' bedroom, and my dad with his baker's clothes on, he would drape that always in the same way. He would put his shirt over the back, then he would put his pants. I do the same thing, uh, uh, more or less, and uh, he puts that on the seat and. 
put everything else on, but it was on that chair. And I got to talking once. I said, Harry, do we still have that uh, that chair with uh, uh, that with the bent wood on the back? Because there's some sharp bends in there, and I don't know how in the heck they could do that. And then Hank, the guy that was with him, who told me about the, he was a carpenter and a good one too, Hank Clower, and he. Uh, he said that is actually a Michael Tolan chair. And when he said that, it seemed to have more value because the chair uh, is not just any chair, but the chair represented something that somebody had invented. So it, it takes on more or less its own life. Mm -hmm. A chair is a chair is a chair. But anyhow, uh, uh, he said, yes, we may still have it, I don't know, he said, but if we do, it is not in that bedroom because Mean and I, like uh, his wife and, and my brother, they slept in the same room that my parents used to sleep in, mm -hmm. of course. Well, of course, but I mean, that's where it was. This is the home in Oplo? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but we had this uh, loft kind of part, same floor. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where they stored the same as with these uh, hope chests that my mom and dad had. They were stored in there, and there's like a corner, like a, a drawer where you throw all the. Well, uh, I may be able to use it sometime, so I put it in this drawer. And everybody puts everything in that drawer, and eventually, oh gosh, I didn't know that. That's years ago. We got a drawer like that here, I think mm. we have two of them. Still not enough. Anyhow, the uh, uh, the hope chest were there, but the chair, when I was there in 2000, the chair was not, and I was looking for it. So I don't know what happened to it. It could be that somehow it got uh, pushed between a couple of heavy objects and it got squashed and nobody knew its history or anything, and it got thrown out. I don't know. Yeah. I wish I had it because I definitely would have bought it mm -hmm. because I still in the basement have the chair that on Sunday we come out of the church, we have the hot meal and the meal is eaten and then my dad would, uh, he was not a drinker but after his, uh, his meal he would have a shot of cognac mm -hmm. and it was almost like by subscription because he would uh, get off the table, get off his chair at the table, sit in that chair that was near the hearth, and uh, he would sit there, and that was one of those easy chairs with the... Uh, the guy that uh, that made that dope in made that chair for him, mm. and he's uh, kind of a friend of the family. Anyhow, he... Uh, but that would sit in there, and then he knew how much uh, he, he, my dad always put sugar in his cognac yeah. because for me it tasted better. I liked the sugar. I love the taste of cognac, but I like to have a bit of sugar in it. Mm. But my dad wanted the sugar in it. It tends to draw a bit of the alcohol out. The sugar does. Mm. So uh, he would sit there and sip and I'm sitting there. And then he knew about the timing and he takes his last sip before he gets that layer of sugar in the bottom. Mm. He says, if, 
if you put the rod back one or two notches, uh, two notches, and there is three or four notches, and you could put the rod oh, no, in there, and then yeah. it, uh, it leans back. Yeah. And then he could lean back, and he puts his hand, like as, he is, as if he is playing, he locks his mm -hmm. fingers yeah. on his chest, and then the next thing you know, his mouth falls open a bit, and, and you hear him snore. Yeah. And uh, when I think about it, it's almost as if I'm sitting there, hearing them snore, and that is why the chair is nothing to look at, mm -hmm. but it represented a part of what meant so much to me, because before, when I moved the rod and he leaned back, you can have the sugar, he would say, and they have these little Dutch spoons. Mm -hmm. They were especially for stirring sugar in yep. a little drink. And I sit there and I take a little spoon, not a full spoon, but because I got to make it last, and I. And that was a ritual every Sunday. I get the sugar out of his cognac. Yeah, cognac infused sugar. That's what I give my kids too when they were young. What? Cognac infused sugar. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but I was by then uh, uh, probably oh, uh, 12, 13 years old. Uh, so, but so those that that chair no longer you don't that chair yeah. chair has to be gone because we had to take everything out of the house when my kid brother Theo died, mm -hmm. and uh, the house got sold, and we got to clean it out as part of the deal, clean everything out, and I even got into the loft above the bedrooms because during the war, my dad had there was a hole that was right over the stairway uh, going from the second from the main from the second floor down to the main floor mm -hmm. and that hole my dad put a couple of planks across it so you wouldn't get in there but he had some coffee some raisins some currants cigarettes all kinds of them mm -hmm. And I was roaming around in up there, up there once when I was a kid during the war. Yeah. And I found a pack of cigarettes that I saw with the flashlight. Oh, <laughs> I got it made. So I took it and put it under the mattress of my bed so that well, nobody would get to the mattress. If it's, and I knew where it was. Yeah. So. I wanted to smoke, but I was not allowed to. And uh, Holiday was the name of the cigarette. I don't know who smoked it before, but anyway. I had it under my mattress, and uh, every once in a while after school, I would get a cigarette out, and I had a box of matches. But when you have a box of matches in your pocket, the matches will always rather than make a noise. Mm. Hey boy, what do you got in your pocket? You, you don't have matches in your pocket, do you? And uh, Well, yeah, but, but what would you need matches for? I was not allowed to smoke. Mm. You're not going to go set fire. So what do you need matches for? And uh, take them out. So I thought, well, okay. And I, But I got a hold of a box of matches. I took the box apart and then the strike side that I needed for to get the match list, 
uh, lit. I took a few matches in my pocket. I had one of those sights in my pocket. It didn't rattle, it was mm -hmm. loose. And I had in my blouse, my, my overalls, yeah. uh, in, in, the, in the top, I had a top pocket like my shirt here. Yeah. And I had my cigarettes. So I uh, go to my friend and I said, Will, I got one. Where we go? I said, we go in the bushes there. So we went and uh, he came over, he was ready to go play after school. That was Will Bardul. And we got, uh, we sat in the bushes that was on the, going south from our place. And there was long, right along the river and there was a bunch of bushes and we were sitting in there and you could hardly see anything. You, you could never see anybody sitting in there. Mm -hmm. And we lit a cigarette and I'm having a couple of puffs and he has a couple of puffs and then we quietly talk so that in case somebody comes paddling by there was the bridge that goes over that river and uh, if somebody comes by you got to make sure that nobody sees you so you're, you're quiet. But I forgot all about the smoke from the cigarette. Mm. Well as luck would have it, the guy that lives on the other side of the river came pedaling by and he saw smoke coming out of that bush. And he wanted to go, uh, whatever he wanted to buy, and he got in into the store and he said to my sister, you know it's funny, I, I just got across the bridge there and there's that bush. And I don't know if the thing is on fire or what, but the smoke coming out. And my sister, well, she said, Dad, uh, when you look out from the bakery, can you see smoke coming out of the bush near the bridge? And uh, Dad looked at it and, uh, oh, matches. And he started to add things together. And uh, where did you go? Well, we went to where they like to go up for the farmers, mm -hmm. some kind of a co op. And we went there, and uh, well, they have the bulls, and those bulls, they had three of them, and they had this big steel ring in the nose, and uh, to, to manage them. Yeah. And the farmers, they had to change the, the bulls when they took the cow, and I remember watching the farmers coming by and they had a little wisp and they hit the cow and they hold them by the cord on the on their head thing yeah. and uh, leading them up to that co-op because the, the farmers all together owned those bulls yeah. but the bulls had to be so you don't get any inbreeding mm -hmm. and they register every cow every bull for whenever, and, and they all have names and all that. And uh, so we knew that behind the co-op building, the guy that was working in the co-op, Helen Bergmans was his name, and he would go in there and say, which one did you want? And then he'd say, well, this one or that one or that one. And he would go in there and he would would first undo the the latch on the door outside of that bullpen and well on the inside on that stall then he goes on the inside and he loosens the ring 
because the bolt is tight with that ring to a bar sitting in cement. The bolt is not going anywhere. And he gets that undone and he holds that ring and he leads the bolt out and then he, he goes to that cow the, to get the bread. Mm -hmm. And of course we were young and Bill and I, uh, I want, you want to go watch? So we would uh, go into the neighbor across the kitty corner across the road from us. They had like a shed and uh, these old pine boards and they are separated by like drying over time and there were little slits in them there about half an inch wide and we crawled over the farm implements that were being stored there like a plow and a harrow and what have you and we would sit there looking through the the cracks and how he actually managed that bull and we watched the whole episode that is how we discovered what life was all about how old would you and Will been about this time? Uh, let me see. Okay, how old was I in 1940? That was in 1943, I would say. 13? 43, and I was, for all practical purposes, 1932, because yeah. uh, December 1931 mm -hmm. is. Uh, it's late enough, to, so I was 11, I think. Okay. And, uh, oh yeah, we uh, we grew apples early, but they were still green. But we grew apples, and that was more than a lot of others, mm -hmm. uh, so comparatively speaking. If I go back, so your, your sister just told your dad about the smoking bush. Yeah, because... And then what happened after that? So then uh, Dad wanted to know where we were, and I told him that we were playing around in the co-op yeah. because Wheels, Wheels' dad was the guy that uh, he oversaw that mm -hmm. operation. You know, he was hired by the oh. farmers to look after that. Mm -hmm. So we could, on virtue of being Wheels' dad, mm -hmm. we could go in and out because well, Wheels was his kid, so uh, and I could tag along. Uh, did you see that bush burning there near the river? No, no. And no, we didn't see a bush burning. It was not alive. We did not see the bush burning. It may have smoke, but we didn't see that either because the smoke goes up. We were sitting in it, and he didn't push the issue with it. It's funny, I could have sworn I saw smoke coming out of that. Well, I don't know, I didn't see it, but. We were at the co-op, and then this guy came from town, and I seen him walking by with his wisp, and I said to Wheel, uh, uh, there's this cow going to the co-op, and then Wheel said, you want to go and have a look? So we went in Hundry's uh, uh, driving shed, and uh, we were watching the proceedings because that bull is an awful mean-looking thing, mm -hmm. and it was too. It was a, a brutish kind of... Kind of well, those bulls were all mean. Well, you'd stick a metal ring through my nose and tie me to a pole. I'd be mean too. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, they put him in the pasture one time so that he gets out. A bit of exercise. Mm. Otherwise, he's even too, uh, too old and stiff to, to jump. And uh, I got by there and I opened the gate from the one pasture to the other. And 
stupid bull, he he's standing there and he's he's eating and here I am, I open the gate, the bull comes through there and he sees me, comes after me, I run and there is barbed wire, two strings of barbed wire on the fence between the back of our house and that pasture that I let the damn bull into. And he comes after me and I grab that post, I went across it and I slipped on the on the wire and it I still have the the mark the on my leg about uh, seven, eight inches long, where I went through one of those pins on the on the barbed wire and cut my leg my leg right open. And then my mom comes outside and, uh, oh, and what did you do? And that the bull is standing there. You don't want to play anymore like a stupid looking face. And uh, I said, well, the bull came after me and I got over the wire and then I slipped. And it is bleeding, so she gets this old bed sheet out and rips a piece off. That's, that was the bandage in those days. And she bandages it all up. And I had socks on. To, uh, like knee socks. Mm. My dad comes out of the bakery because this is behind the house between the fence and the house. Mm. And uh, what happened? Well, so my mom told him. And he said, well, I'm not worried about the blood. I, that, that leg, that will heal. But he cut his sock from the top to the bottom. How are you going to fix that? And that does not heal because I got to pay for that. He said, but it's his own fault. He should have stayed out of the past. He has no business going in. So anyhow, uh, he was totally without mercy on that point. Oh, my mom was feeling so bad. But anyhow, she bent, uh, she bent it all up. Today, they would take you to the hospital. You get a tetanus shot and all the rest of it. Because mm. that wire was rusty. And who knows uh, how many cows have rubbed their mm. chin across that wire getting stung. Yeah, that was that was a, that that was in nineteen forty three. Towards the end of the war we could see that it was ending because the uh, the Feldgau, what they called the, the regular army, the the conscripts, uh, they were beginning to not be so nice. They were very nice, the regular soldiers. Mm -hmm. The only ones that we had to worry about was the the, uh, the SS, but the regular soldiers, they were fine. Uh, but uh, they had to go back, that reminds me just of, in 44, I think that D-Day was over, but they hadn't come into our area yet because we got liberated on the ninth, I think it was the 19th of September. It was on a, was on a, I think it was on a Friday, I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, uh, they, they came and where we lived, there was five roads coming together. They come down one road and they have to go around the bend to go to Germany. Mm -hmm. But that road that they came down on, 
the, the, it, it was a D road that just continues on into the village. There is one that turns off and that goes to Germany. It's a shortcut kind of. And it had a, a wooden board with black letters on it. And it said Weser. Weser is the first town across the border in Germany. And all those soldiers knew you got to go where the sign says Weser. But you get the underground, like the resistance, and they took the boards off the, the, the uh, like this town is here, that one's there, you know, the directions in five, five directions. And they took that down and they took that one wooden sign with Weser on it and they took it away. So it bewildered those Germans, they couldn't retreat. And they call in the SS, and the SS comes in. And I'll never forget that part, because I've never been so worried in my life. And for good reasons, too. They, the SS comes in with the truck and the jeep or other vehicle, whatever it was. And across the road from the Bardouls, we had this little patch of grass and garden. Well, the grass was the, the provinces, but the garden was ours. That was all that was left after the expropriation. And we were all ordered out of the house and stand on that patch of grass. And one of those assessors had the machine gun set up with the barrel pointing towards the barn door of the Bordeaux barn across the road. And all the men, the fathers in that neighborhood, were put up against that barn. And all the women and children, the mothers with their children, had to stand behind that machine gun. And they said, within so much time or whatever, the sundowner. Uh, we have to have those signs or we're going to mow down all the fathers. Well, there was there must have been 20 or 30 kids or more, plus the mothers, plus the farmhands or whatever, helpers they had for whatever job they had to do. and. My mom was in bed because she had cancer and they lifted her off her bed, put her on a stretcher and she got <laughs> the place of honor, so to speak, in normal circumstances, right behind so she could witness a bird's eye view mm -hmm. and she had to sit behind that assessor that was manning the machine gun. And he was sitting on his knee, ready to follow the command at, in a minute. Anyway, they did find the signs and they were let go. And then they actually brought my mom back in the house. But that is how close. It was just another half an hour and our fathers would have been dead 
because they were totally merciless. When when they were retreating, they knew it was a lost cause. They already knew that when they went into Russia. That was the turning point when they opened the second front. He should have never done that. If he hadn't, we would all be speaking German. And I wouldn't be sitting here uh, for a different reason than the book, but I mean, it's another one of those things. Fate brings you where you get. And uh, the fear we had, and one kid started to cry and wail, and, and uh, that he wanted to go and hug his dad. And one of those assessors, they stand there with a gun. They always got to come on stalk. The assessors are, they, they, they were not drafted. They were, uh, they volunteers. They volunteers to be in the SS. And the worst part was that most of them were Dutch. Stupid bastards. They actually betrayed their own country to fight for the enemy. And, but that's no wonder because when, when the Germans entered, they go to the jails and, uh, and these, the heavies were in there, like in Rotterdam, uh, Amsterdam. So what are you in for? Murder. How long you got to go? 30 years. Uh, would you like to get out? <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll give you a uniform and you come in the army. And they were the meanest of the mean bastards. And they made up the SS. And that is why they had absolutely no, no morals, no feelings. They were criminals, diehard criminals. And they stuck them in a nice uniform and they gave them a jeep or whatever. And compare that with spending a lifetime in jail. So they had it made that uh, uh, they had no love lost for the country that locked them up, even though they were the criminals to begin with. So just, I want to just go back. So <clears throat> did you ever get a chance to see your paternal grandfather's cafe at all? On the outside. Yeah. But I never went inside because at that time, uh, long, uh, other people had bought mm -hmm. the house and uh, the, the kids were all gone. The parents were dead. Mm -hmm. Like my dad was in Oplo. Yeah. And then my, uh, my one uncle, Omidoris. So he was your dad's brother? He was yeah. my dad's youngest brother. No, yeah. I think his youngest brother. Mm -hmm. And he was the organist in Birmingham, where my dad was born. Mm -hmm. in the, he was the organist in the church. Uh, he was quite the guy. He had no children. He was married. Had no children. And the tobacco store. He sold tobacco and uh, cards, you know, like uh, pictures of the town. Mm -hmm. When people come in and you want to write a little card. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he had a typical 1930s moustache like the British had, except that uh, they didn't have him pointed. My uncle Doris had it turned up. My dad had two for a while. Mm -hmm. And uh, I still see him, and I visited him a couple of times, but him and Kitz was not compatible. He didn't have his own. Yeah. So, but he, uh, I went to visit there once, and we had a cup of hot chocolate, 
and then we went into the store, he sold candies, and then my aunt, I, I've seen her in my entire life, maybe for half an hour, mm. all told. But that's the way they were. And my cousin, who became the organist in that church, took lessons from my uncle, Omidores, to play the organ. During the war, the power fell out because they had bombed, towards the end of the war, the British had bombed the, uh, the power generating plant and, well, there was no power. And the church, the organ, you could play, but there was a great big fan that brought in that volume of air. Mm -hmm. And there was no power, so no organ. And the priest said, what are we going to do, Doris, when we, you can't play the organ the way it is, and it takes too much to bring the, the bellows back in. You know, they took the bellows out, mm -hmm. the hydro came in, so we don't need that old-fashioned stuff. Never thought of a bore. And, uh, and then Omidore said, don't worry, he said, I'll have, I'll have music for your high mass on Sunday. And my uncle went upstairs on the choir, that is up higher, and he brought his accordion. And he played the mass, but it was a big, expensive accordion. Some have more capacity than others. And he played the entire mass with every song, every tune that is in it, on that accordion. And the people were so extremely happy that even though there was no lights, there was no nothing, there was one light that was always burning. Uh, they called that the God's lamp. And there was a, a red lamp in every church. And you put oil in it. And it keeps burning. It's just like the Olympic flame, just always burns, day and night, even during the war. But it's the only light they had in there. But it was daytime, so he played on his accordion, he, he played that mass. And I often have wondered, uh, how could he get that tune coming out of an accordion? But then, if the organist is, because he had, uh, I believe two registers of of uh, keys. buttons to keys to to play, and he only had the one, and then he had a bunch on the floor yet. And uh, but he did it. That was Oma Doors. And then I had an uncle, Oma Wim, that was my dad's favorite brother, mm -hmm. and he. Uh, he lived in Trute, which was what twenty kilometers away from from Beuningen. and uh, he had a bakery. Uh, it seems that they all uh, liked bakeries. I I don't know, uh, but anyhow, he uh, and he had a bunch of children. His oldest son right after the war, went to New Zealand. And for some reason, uh, we were living in Whitby then, 
So it's got to be 25, 30 years ago. And he came to Canada. I don't know where he had to go or why he came to Canada. But on a Sunday morning, I got a call. Oh, I think we were planning to go to, to Tilsenburg. It must have been in that time period, just before you guys. Uh, he phoned up and he said, is that Albert? I said, yes. I said, who am I talking to? And uh, Wim, Wim Willems. I said, I had an uncle, Omer Wim. Yeah, he says, I'm his oldest son. I said, uh, where, are you, where are you calling from? He said, from Toronto. He said, I live in New Zealand, but my wife and I are for holidays in Canada, and I know that my sister, that was Mies, and the kids know her all, and said that he lives near Toronto, so why don't you go and see him? And he wanted to come that day to, to visit us, but we had already planned to go to Tilsenburg, and I believe it was Tilsenburg where we wanted to go, but I can't swear to that, I, I have to check with mom. But anyway, uh, we, we never did meet, but he was staying in the, in the hotel, the, 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 the big one. Royal York. The Royal York. And I thought, by golly, Wim, you must have done okay for yourself to come all the way to Canada from New Zealand then stay in the Royal York. Uh, I would have looked for a motel along the Danport somewhere, but no, he stayed in the Royal York. And unfortunately, I never saw him. And I think a couple of three years later, uh, things got bad in his head and he died. I don't know what happened to him. It was not Alzheimer's, it was uh, some kind of something wrong with his brain. And his wife, I didn't know. So anyway, I had to miss out on that. And that was that part. And then, of course, uh, Mies uh, was the oldest daughter of Oma Wim. And she and her husband, she never, her husband had been married before, but his wife died. And then, he married Mies, and Mies was an old spinster, like she, she always looked after everything at home, the kids, the household. Mom had died, and somebody had to run the household. So Mies took it upon herself to do that, but then the kids all got old enough and kind of looking after themselves. And she got married and moved out. And I think one of the sons, took over the bakery and another one, his name was Theo, named after Doors, Oma Doors, Theodores, Theo, like my brother. Mm. Uh, Sorry, he's, what relation is he to you? Who? The other Theo. Uh, he is my cousin. Okay. Uh, he is Mises' brother. Right. And 
he was into mechanics. Uh, he came down once with the, with the motorcycle, and it was a beauty. Oh man, it, uh, I was salivating when I saw it. And he said, uh, you want to go for a ride? And I sat on the back, and one of those unforgettable rides that you have that you never forget. And I looked at him and I thought, that's my cousin, he got that bike. And so I was back there in 78. And then my brother said, do you know that Theo van Omerwim's uh, Theo, his son, has a car dealership in in Druten or wherever, anyway, in that area. I said, well, he was a mechanic, yeah, and a good one too, Harry said, but he was always puttering around with stuff like that, and he's got this dealership, and it's going good. He has done very well for himself. I said, well, I hope he is happy too, because otherwise it's still no good, no matter how well you've done. And, uh, we were going to see him, but we only go as, got as far as phoning and we would go there, but he was out of town. He had to go to some kind of a meeting of the dealers of, I, I don't know, but it was a, a, a French car that he had uh, in his dealership or a German car or maybe a Ford. I don't know. But anyhow, he was a dealer and he had to go to this and he couldn't, he wouldn't be home. Not knowing his wife, why would we want to go and talk to Ria? Ria was her name. So consequently I have never seen him anymore. But he was very nice, I, I like talking to him because he knew everything about cars and motorcycles and how they worked and uh, the history of it. and. Uh, well, so it would be fair to say that he was kind of a tinkerer? Well, yeah, yeah. Because the reason I'm asking is because based on listening to what your family does, you've got a tinkerer, a tailor, a baker. I'm just waiting for the spy to pop up, but I'm sure there'll be a spy somewhere in your a family. spy? Tinker, tailor, baker, spy. That's my oh. version. That's my version. Oh, no. No, I... Uh, but just My oldest brother could have been a spy yeah, yeah. because he was so patriotic. Like uh, he was by the resistance, yeah. you know. He was part of the group that actually took that road sign down. Yeah. But he wasn't in town anymore by then mm -hmm. because they were all over. We never knew when he came home. Yeah. He's the one that I used to sit on the roof with, yeah. watching the planes go by. Yeah, well, I don't want to talk too much about him because I think you could, no, no. You could do 50 minutes in him easily. That oh, was your yeah, yeah, but uh, uh, he was yeah, he was something else yeah. again. It's too bad that he was not understood. But just quickly, because we're getting close to the end. Oh, sorry. But no, no, that's fine. But just going back, so you're on your dad's side, your dad's father and mother, so we kind of touched them. He was a tailor, and then he had a cafe. And then, how many brothers did your dad have, and sisters? There was Oma Wim and Oma Doris, and my dad. Yep. And then there was three sisters. Okay. Tatamina, who married 
uh, Jan Poelen, oom Jan Poelen, who was from a fairly rich Nijmegen family, and uh, an architect and whatnot in the family. I don't know what, oom Jan was actually an artist, believe it or not, but he had a bakery in Beuningen, and Tatamina and him, they bought that bakery, he had all the money in the world. And that bakery had a house in the back. And uh, the front of the, the house was used as a store. The bakery was there and the barn was there where they kept the vehicles where beforehand they used to have the wood stored for the bakery. And then they lived in that house behind it. But they made living quarters in the front and then the house in the back. My dad had two sisters, Trudy and Nelly, Tante Truus and Tante Nelleke, and they lived in that house. They let them live there. Mm. They were, well, they got a bit of money, but not really enough to survive, but they would run errands for Omian and when they were Tante Mina's sisters. Mm -hmm. So, well, she kind of talked Omian into letting them live there. And what I remember is that they had apricots too. Because I was in 1940, August 1940, I spent in Beuningen. I was there for holidays. And one week, I spent with Ome Jan Poele and his son Dami, Damian, uh, was my age. And he is the one who played the organ in the church and he inherited every bloody penny from Ome Doors. He married a girl uh, who was the only child, a daughter, on this farm. So she, he married into money, inherited money, was actually a, 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 a pharmacist that for his own sake. So it all came together. I hope he was happy with it, otherwise he was still poor. But uh, Dummy was a nice kind of a guy. And uh, uh, I have sent Christmas cards for years, but then they stopped coming and I assume he must have died. But, uh, yeah, that was the extent of my dad's family. Mm -hmm. And my dad's mother was German. And my mom's father was French. And the rest was Dutch. So we kind of had to Maybe the mother to the United Nations after all, <laughs> family, I don't know. But uh, uh, yeah, we had uh, the influence of two different cultures, three different cultures. That's maybe why I, I am not a racist or uh, I can't see the point of it anyway. Okay, sounds good. Bye, Mom. Be good. Thought so. <laughs> okay.
I think that's probably a good spot to stop the podcast now. Oh. Right. We'll kind of fish off and then we'll pick up next week and probably pick up talking a little bit about uh, your immediate family, your brothers and sisters and that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Okay. 